and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Carissa Nitschi. We're so glad you can join us. Today, we are continuing our New Year's series on Brussels Sprouts with a look at the state of transatlantic relations going into 2023. The past year has demanded extensive coordination between the United States and Europe in responding to Russia's war against Ukraine, acting as a stress test for the strength of the transatlantic relationship. So far, unity has largely held as broad strategic agreement about the necessity of sanctions on Russia and military aid for Ukraine has outweighed periodic tactical disputes. Nevertheless, the war continues to grind on with no end in sight, and there is potential that disagreements could widen as time goes on. Adding to this are persistent tensions in the economic domain, most notably Europe's unhappiness with the Buy American provisions of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, Given these ongoing developments, what should we expect from transatlantic relations going forward? Today, we're discussing these issues through a German lens, and we're very pleased to have Wolfgang Ischinger and Sophia Besch on the podcast. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Great to be here. Brief introductions. Uh, Wolfgang is the former chairman of the Munich Security Conference. He also previously served in the German government as state secretary and ambassador to the United States. And Sophia is a fellow in the Europe program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and her area of expertise is European defense policy. All right, so I thought we would start uh, looking at Germany before we zoom out to look at some of these broader transatlantic trends. Um, There's clearly quite a lot going on in Germany. We have a new defense minister, which we haven't yet talked about on Brussels sprouts. Uh, Scholz has finally given the green light on sending tanks. We know that the German economic minister, together with his French counterpart, was just here in Washington for meetings at the White House. Uh, We continue to see these indications of some strain within the coalition uh, in the week before the Munich Security Conference. And I think maybe just to throw it open wide, Wolfgang, um, just to hear from you, how would you describe the state of affairs in Berlin at the moment? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to participate in this Brussels uh, Sprouts uh, series. Um, And this is, of course, an important moment uh, in time, as you just said, uh, uh, practically one week before the 2023 edition of the Munich Security Conference. <clears throat> Actually, the first one, I'm the conduct of which I'm not going to be responsible for. So you find me in a state of uh, not complete but significant relaxation. Yeah. In in previous years, I would have I would have sleepless nights beginning in December about, you know, uh, plan B, what would we do if Angela Merkel doesn't show up uh, or the U.S. Secretary of Defense, et cetera, et cetera. So against that background, um, great to participate in this thought. Let me me share two points. First, um, we had, as I think everybody knows, we had an almost historic speech by... Chancellor Scholz, a little less than a year ago, um, at the end of February, three or four days after the beginning of the Russian uh, invasion at the end of uh, February. Um, I think that was a very significant moment. And what I find almost more surprising is that 
the German voters, the um, political class, has largely, largely, not completely, but largely uh, accepted the premise that um, the past is the past and we're now in the present and we're moving into a future which is going to be very, very different from the past because we are, in fact, in a state of war that's going on in the heart of Europe. Something and, and involving a nuclear power, something that has previously not happened, at least not in my, uh, in my lifetime. Um, so I think this is significant, especially against the background of um, a German mood, which, which has been developing over the last, I would say, almost 30 years, a mood that things are fine the way they are an obsession almost with the status quo, the idea that now that Germany has been reunited, you know, in 1990, um, uh, what else is new? We, we don't need any, any, any further efforts. Uh, the world is great as it is. We're now only surrounded by friends. That was a sentence that I, uh, I put myself into speeches of my, my ministers and chancellors when I was an active foreign uh, 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 diplomat, um, a foreign policy advisor. Um, so against that background, this this um, is really quite significant. That's that's point point one. Point two, what I wanted to say. Germany has been forced because of the past to um, accept changes to its to essential elements of its foreign policy that exceed the changes that were forced upon other partner countries um, quite significantly. I mean, half of the fundamental dogmatic ideas of German foreign policy, like never will we uh, export arms to areas of crisis or conflict, um, etc. It's just one example. Um, uh, the idea of long-term and, and 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 practically permanent partnership with Russia, it's all gone up in flames. Um, and and in other words, we are looking at a at the need of almost total reorientation, a revision, um, and 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 redefinition. Of our of our foreign policy goals. So for Germany, this has been a tough year, in fact. And I'm impressed, um, leaving aside a few bumps in the road that, of course, always happen in these uh, situations. I'm really quite impressed with the fact that, largely, generally speaking, uh, we've actually uh, stayed on course. And uh, even if you will argue, and I'm sure you would argue that Germany has not shown a lot of leadership, that Germany has dragged its feet on uh, certain types of weapons deliveries, et cetera, et cetera, for Ukraine. At the end of the day, we've actually come around. And when you look at the hard facts, Germany's track record is actually not that bad at all uh, in terms of total deliveries and economic help and financial aid and the mood of the population. The Germans, a majority of Germans, believes that we're doing the right thing in terms of sustaining the Ukrainian defense effort. So in other words, I think that, that 
generally speaking, under these extremely unusual and, and challenging um, uh, conditions, Germany is in relatively good shape, especially now with the new defense minister who appears to, to, who appears to know what to say at the right moment and not at the wrong moment and to, and to play the role that you would normally expect a defense minister of a major European uh, country to play. So I'll stop here for the moment. Yeah, that's so helpful. I mean, I your your points are extremely well taken. I think sometimes in the we get caught up in the smaller bumps in the road, as you said, and we lose sight of these broader, just really significant changes that have taken place. And there with Germany, there is a story. Some a lot of people focus on a glass half empty kind of story, but there certainly is a a glass half full um, kind of narrative about it too. So I, I think those points are really well taken. Sophia, I'll let you add anything. And if you want to say, you know, there have there were a lot of questions certainly about the new defense minister and who he is and and what that portends um, for the future of defense policy. Any any insight you can give um, that sheds light on kind of what was behind that change and and what it might signal moving forward. Sure, thank you, Andrea. Um, I was nodding along to a lot of what uh, Wolfgang Ischinger was saying because I do agree with that framing. I think it is important to keep in mind the magnitude of the paradigm shift that is happening, not just in German politics, but also in the German population. Um, I think we have to address the fact that there hasn't been unequivocal support of what has happened since the Zeitenwende speech. I think partly that is because um, it sort of depends on what bar you apply here. If the bar is German defense policy, energy policy, Russia policy before the invasion, we have certainly come a very long way. Um, if the bar is the new security situation in Europe, I think uh, we can still improve. Um, and I understand that uh, sometimes people in Berlin might feel like the allies are constantly raising the bar and they might feel unfairly judged. I don't think we should see it that way. I think we should really focus on the needs of Ukraine and focus on the needs of, of frontline states and adjust accordingly, you know. But I do think it's important for particularly your listeners in the US to understand that, of course, there is um, there are two audiences here for the chancellery. It is not just the allies. It's also the German voters um, that uh, they have to address and that they have to keep on board. So that was one point that I wanted to make just in response to Wolfgang Ischinger's um, remarks. Um, on Boris Pistorius, um, he's not been in office very long. I think uh, it's fair to say that he had uh, a pretty hard first day of work, first couple day of work. <laughs> he came uh, into office and just a couple hours later met his U.S. counterpart and then had the Rammstein meeting. So it was a full plate from the very beginning. He's, of course, um, formerly the interior minister of Lower Saxony, also from the Social Democrat Party, so a party ally of uh, Chancellor Scholz, which is helpful, I think. Um, the coordination and the link between the chancellery and the defense ministry are really important in these times when the defense minister is ha having to oversee such enormous uh, challenges and changes. I really like what uh, we've seen so far from Boris Pistorius. I think um, he's been serious. He's been uh, showing to uh, that he understands the challenge at hand. He went to Kiev and has announced um, uh, 
the concrete numbers of leopard tanks that Germany and some allies are sending, which it's hugely important. I think we had a big conversation around the decision to send uh, tanks, whether or not, and how that decision was made. If you want to talk about that more, I'm sure we can. But there's also the second stage. We'll definitely of come back to that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and there's uh, the second stage, of course, which is the actual supplying and then the maintenance and the training and the logistics. And those are sort of the challenges that the defense minister is facing now. He has announced uh, that Germany is sending 14 Leopard 2 tanks and that Germany and partners, Denmark and the Netherlands in particular, are also sending Leopard um, 1A5 tanks, which is the older version. Um, there's been concrete announcements. So I found that very encouraging. Um, just one last point on the defense minister in terms of the challenges, the intray, if you will, that he faces. One is, I think, um, defense industrial production capacity and the continued weapon supply and logistics and, and maintenance of the military support to Ukraine. The other is procurement reform and um, how to spend the announced increase in uh, defense spending. And that is something that I think is a, a huge task that others before him have struggled with and that I, I wish him the very best luck uh, in tackling. You've both pointed out this really transformational change that we've seen in Germany. Um, but the Zeitenwinde speech promised a lot of things in a very short amount of time. I'd be curious um, just to pull a little bit more on the Zeitenwinde thread. What is your idea? What is your progress report on Zeitenwinde right now? How far along is Germany in meeting some of those targets? And how are they doing? What's the outlook looking forward? Let me start um, with, again, an almost philosophical observation. Um, the um, this past year, since the Zeitenwende speech, has energized, at least from a German point of view, has energized and and revitalized um, and made uh, uh, you know far more even more essential the transatlantic relationship, the German-American relationship, the NATO uh, uh, relationship. Um, the problem for Germany, the, the problem, uh, and that, that's of course good in principle, but the problem is there is a victim. There's a victim of this uh, love affair um, by Chancellor Scholz uh, for the US and clinging and, and making sure that there, you know, that there is total, um, total uh, uh, uniformity of, of a commonality of purpose and of action uh, between the United States and Germany as far as, as our uh, activities uh, uh, are going to be seen from Moscow. Now, the victim of this is the European Union. Um, I think that if you're looking for the uh, promise um, for the many promises which the German coalition made when it started a little more than a year ago, um, the words European Union, strengthening the EU, making the European Union a capable actor, um, maybe falling short a little bit of, of Emmanuel Macron's call for strategic autonomy, but certainly aiming for, um, for strategic sovereignty of the European Union. Um, my 
take is that uh, the Scholz government has done, generally speaking, the right thing in working with the U.S., um, but we have not done enough to advance the European cause. I think historians, maybe you know, a decade from now, will be forced to remark that maybe a ch uh, an opportunity was ignored, maybe a chance was lost for this uh, challenge by Russia of the European security order uh, was actually answered certainly by Germany and, and others in terms of strengthening again the NATO link, but actually in falling short of doing what we've promised to do uh, for the um, uh, for the for the European Union, um, in fact, the entire leopard tank debate is, at least from my point of view, um, a a course of events which demonstrate that the only thing that mattered <clears throat> in the minds of the decision makers in the chancellery in the German government was how to make sure that we would be totally in step with Washington. Um, quote, unquote, the Abrams, um, Abrams M1 tank must be, you know, delivered in parallel to the Leopard. We don't want to do this at all. Now, finally, why is this obsession with the with this adhesion to, with this involvement with the United States. I think it's important to understand, especially if, 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 if I, when I speak to uh, Americans or to, uh, uh, to friends from the UK or, for, or to my French friends, it's important to understand that in the mind of Olaf Scholz, the fact that we are not a nuclear power and that they are a nuclear power. The Americans, the British, the French, they are a nuclear power. That plays a hugely important role. And I don't recall a moment in recent history where that difference has been more starkly highlighted than in these last uh, couple of months. Olaf Scholz believes that if there is no uh, direct coupling with uh, the American nuclear guarantee, Germany would um, would be defenseless, would would be exposed to uncontrollable risks vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Russia, and that of course raises, uh, unfortunately, raises difficult questions regarding, for example, the existence of Article forty-two point seven of the European Union Treaty, the the Lisbon Treaty. It raises questions about uh, the German belief in the functionality, in the credibility, in the reliability of, uh, of NATO and of Article 5. Uh, Olaf Scholz wanted an extra guarantee, a special you know, slap on the, uh, on the shoulder from the United States before he took the Leopard decision. Uh, that is not something that is, help, is helpful in, in our effort to um, make the European Union a stronger and more capable uh, foreign policy and security and defense uh, uh, actor. And I think this 
particular aspect is, is going to be worth debating uh, going forward, even beyond the, the, current, uh, the current conflict and the current war uh, in, in Ukraine. How are we going to, uh, to define our own role, we as Europeans, uh, going forward, if, in fact, uh, we're going to have to deal with aggressive behavior by Russia, maybe also in the future, more aggressive behavior by other uh, major powers like China, etc. Uh, is our our dependence on the United States not only not being reduced by a stronger EU, but maybe even strengthened uh, by these new challenges? And what does that mean for our belief in in a future that uh, uh, that would bring a a European Union that can actually claim that it stands on its own feet? So I think that is one. Uh, uh, unresolved issue um, that we need in, in, in the German context that we need to, to keep discussing going forward. Sophia, I want to hear your report, and certainly you can comment, um, but your report on the um, kind of the report card in the wake of the speech. But Wolfgang, one very quick follow-up question, because you're touching on this idea and something that was picked up in the press here in the United States, uh, you know, like Scholz's insistence that the U.S. send the Abrams um, reflected his fear that the United States wouldn't get involved if Russia were to retaliate. What do you think drives that? I don't know if it's a insecurity or I, it's, it, I think it says something about the level of trust in the relationship. Like what, what is it, what drives that fear of Schultz? It's like even greater than the fear of escalation. It's this fear that the United States wouldn't be there. And he needed some more credible commitment that the United States was there, but but what what's driving that distrust? Do you think? Well, or one if, element, or if you would frame it that way, maybe that's not. Yeah, I mean, one element of that is uh, is German angst. Uh, remember, Germans were more fearful of uh, uh, thirty or forty years ago uh, of uh, the fallout of Chernobyl uh, when that nuclear power plant. Uh, uh, blew up in, in, in Ukraine, uh, Germans reacted in panic. Um, Angela Merkel herself reacted in panic, along with a majority of German voters, um, after the Fukushima incident. I mean, Japan kept doing what they were doing and didn't get rid of their, their existing nuclear re reactors at all. Germany uh, took a 180-degree turn and abandoned civilian nuclear power. That was driven by angst, by, by, by the worry that uh, this is something that we are not going to be able to control. And the fact that we happen to be, and we believe that it's the right thing for Germany to stick to its non-nuclear role, we have committed ourselves twice uh, uh, for the second time, in the, in the Treaty on German Unity uh, in, in 1990, the 2 plus 4 Treaty, we've committed ourselves to remaining a non-nuclear power. And it's and I personally, I, I strongly believe that that was the right thing and needs, needs to be the right thing. We need to be in favor of uh, more, not less, um, non-proliferation non uh, around the world. And we need to be a, uh, a strong defender of uh, nuclear non-proliferation as a major economic power that does not believe in, in having uh, nuclear weapons. But it does create, in my view at least, I'm of course not 
the personal psychiatrist of Olaf Scholz, but it does create in, in the minds of German decision makers the sense of, uh, of greater vulnerability compared to our classic partners. And if our classic partners are the French, the British, and the Americans, we find, oh, they can, they can have a discussion with Vladimir and can say, look, uh, think twice before you talk to us about threatening us with nuclear weapons, because we have these weapons also. Uh, and there is um, sufficient deterrent capability. We don't have that. And I think that is, given the fact that Olaf Scholz is a new chancellor, he's been only in, in, in this job for a year, he wants to make sure that um, history will not, Germans and, and German history will not judge him to be a chancellor who um, took uh, unnecessary risks and drove Germany into a, into a military conflict for the first time since World War II. Um, I think from my point of view, that's an understandable concern. I think it's the, it's the right concern a chancellor should have. I'm not so sure I share his reaction and I share his recipe of how to deal with it. I, I, would, I would have thought that um, he should have simply said, we have NATO, we have Article 5, we have the United States, we have American troops, actually, in Western Europe. We have uh, a, a reaffirmation by America of its commitment to Europe. Uh, and thank God we have Joe Biden, who, who doesn't need to be told where Berlin is and where Kiev is, etc. He is a committed transatlanticist, and that's a great basis for us to go forward together. I think that could have been the response of a of a chancellor who's been in office for a longer period of time and, and who feels comfortable with this. I think Olaf Scholz felt very uncomfortable two or three months into his job being confronted with the war question. You know, that's, a, I think it was, as a former finance minister, I think he was totally unprepared for that. Your point about yeah. the angst is such a good one. And it's obviously something Putin is a, acutely aware of. And I'm just thinking of his speech from last week where he called out Germany by name for the provision of tanks and made the kind of not so thinly veiled nuclear threat, but it was really picking and pushing on that German angst. Um, Sophia, anything, we, we went a little bit astray, anything you want to say in reaction um, to Wolfgang, or um, I would love to hear your assessment of where we are um, in the wake of the, of the speech. Sure, of course. I mean, there's a lot on the table now. I'll there's a lot of different ways you can go. <laughs> we can have a long conversation about the German collective psyche, but I'll try to start a bit more material than that and go back to uh, the Carissa's questions about the, the track record of Zeit and Wende. Um, I think that uh, the speech, basically the speech that Olaf Scholz made, the Zeit and Wende speech uh, about a year ago now, I had the three main elements to it against which we can measure the success of Zeitenwende. I think a fourth has been added um, over the course of the last year. The three um, baskets that he announced in his speech concerned um, a paradigm shift in Germany's uh, Russia policy, which I think we've seen. There's been a real re-evaluation of German views on Russia and a reckoning, I think, that goes really deep in the political establishment um, about the assumptions that were made 
um, following on from Ostpolitik and uh, German history of Russia policy about whether Russia could be a part of the European security order or not. I don't really think there is any going back to the status quo ante here. So good track report, track report on Russia policy so far. Energy policy was the second uh, basket of announcements. Um, and again, um, under pressure, uh, but again, I think the track rec report is good here. Um, Germany was heavily dependent on uh, Russian fossil fuels and it has become independent of them over the course of the last year, which again, I think is a major achievement. The third thread of the Zeitmender speech was a defense policy announcements. And in that were um, an increase of the defense budget uh, to reach 2% year by year, the announcement of the special fund, the 100 billion um, in order to do that, um, announcements on arms exports, which Wolfgang has, has touched on already, and then the announcement to fulfill our pledges within NATO, which Germany is also working on doing. Um, I think the fourth element that has been sort of added, um, including by the chancellor, but also uh, via expectations of allies is the idea of German leadership, um, German military leadership even in Europe. Um, and here, the track record is a bit more mixed. Um, I think partly uh, there are material reasons here um, because on defense policy, um, there's a real difficulty, for example, spending the money there are real procurement issues when it comes to um, filling up German defense capability gaps. And there are, to be honest, questions over whether it will be able to fulfill the greater role in uh, NATO and in the EU that it has uh, promised to achieve long term. Um, and then I think there are questions over what does German leadership look like, right? And uh, it's a question that Many people in Berlin are currently asking because we are writing our first national security strategy, because it's something that our allies will often bring up, um, this idea of German leadership. And one answer that I think the chancellery has found is um, the idea of what the chancellor calls zusammenführen, um, which means basically uh, leading together, but also forging alliances, right? Germany as a leader from the middle, if you want that idea. Um, and, you know, you could say that this is what Berlin is doing. Um, it certainly has forged an alliance with Washington uh, um, over the, the tank debate. It is also right now, and I think the jury is still out on um, whether it is forging uh, sustainable alliances when it comes to tank deliveries, but, and this is where I want to um, respond to what Wolfgang Ischinger said, there are questions over whether it is forging proactively alliances in Europe and is really doing that in the sense that some of us would hope that uh, Berlin would be doing it right now. And when you ask the chancellor about that, and I'm always very interested when he is asked about these ideas of European sovereignty, European autonomy, because the coalition treaty that this coalition and government signed is uh, you know, firmly committed to the EU, to Europe, to um, Europe that is more able to act. But from what I understand from the Chancellor's remarks, for him, there's a sense of transatlanticism now, Europe tomorrow, or maybe the day after tomorrow, right? And um, of course that is rooted in reality and a military capability reality. Europe currently is not able to lead militarily or even politically as we've seen in the war over the course of the last year, 
the US had had to take on a really strong disciplining role, I think, in organizing the European response um, militarily and politically. But the problem that I see is, of course, that if you want European sovereignty tomorrow, you have to make decisions today <laughs> in order to make that happen. And those are decisions that are related to building trust uh, in Europe as a collective that is able to act, possibly independently, because, you know, we've, Wolfgang has mentioned Joe Biden is a committed transatlanticist. He might be the last committed transatlanticist for a little while. Generational change is coming in U.S. politics. It's not just the shift to the Indo-Pacific. It is something that Europeans cannot rely on long term that uh, the U.S. will take such a strong role uh, in European affairs. So there's the question of trust. There's also the very real question of procurement decisions <laughs> that are made right now, right? European defense capabilities, whether we want to rely on uh, buying off the shelf from the US or whether we want to invest in um, a stronger European defense industrial base. Uh, and this is where I really see, and I wanna end on this, the role of the EU. I don't see, I think it's important just for also the American uh, audiences to clarify what I don't mean when I talk about European sovereignty is the EU taking on the role that NATO currently has. Um, what I do see is the EU taking on a much stronger defense industrial role, integrating the European defense market, becoming much more engaged in incentivizing joint procurement among Europeans. And that is something where I would currently wish for more leadership, more um, engagement from Berlin, um, including supporting it financially by uh, increasing the union's budget that it has um, when incentivizing these, these joint procurement efforts, because right now European countries have all raised their defense spending. They're all going on a big shopping spree. It would be really useful if that was well coordinated and integrated around a couple of um, main military systems to guarantee interoperability for the next you know, generation uh, to come. Well, that is definitely going to be the topic for a future podcast because there's so it's such an important issue and so much we could say around that. But as you were talking, I I like your idea. I mean that you're that you're highlighting Scholz and his um, prioritization of relationships. And I think there's a couple of different relationships that Krista and I we were talking before the podcast are really interested in. One is his relationships with his own coalition. So maybe we can talk about that then maybe we can get to the relationships with the rest of Europe. And then I'm also really curious about his trip to South America. So the way that he thinks about forging relationships with Global South and, and, and other parts. But maybe just to follow up with you very quickly, Sophia, I mean, we from, from Washington, we keep hearing little bits and pieces of kind of these stories about tensions within the coalition. And now the latest seems to be kind of this tug of war over where foreign policy sits and the foreign ministry accusing the chancellery of kind of creating, you know, its own center of gravity within the chancellery. I don't know what, like, what, what should we make of that? Um, how do we think about, um, how cohesive the, the the coalition is and where foreign policy will be made. And, and I think that, and is that one of the reasons, <clears throat> excuse me, why the national security strategy has been delayed? Okay, it's a really good question. Um, and there are a couple of elements to the answer that I wanna hit on. One is, yes, coalition politics. Um, this is a coalition made up of the Social Democrats, the Greens and the Economic Liberals. 
um, there is great overlap, and especially when it comes to foreign policy, I think there's a pretty solid shared foreign policy consensus among these parties, but there are definitely uh, differences. There's also um, defense and foreign policy wasn't the thing that this coalition wanted to do together. <laughs> they wanted to, before the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine, they were committed to decarbonization and digitalization. They are now stuck with this project and they're going to be measured against that, but it's not something that they thought they would have to work on together so um, intensely. Um, and there are definitely tensions from the coalition politics point of view. There are also tensions in German foreign and defense policymaking because it's spread out over lots of different ministries and places of decision-making between the foreign ministry, the defense ministry, and the chancery. And because Wolfgang Ischinger is on the call, I have to absolutely shout him out as someone who has been arguing this forever, uh, the fact that um, we need institutional change in the decision-making on German foreign and defense policy. I think there's certainly a bureaucratic Zeitenwende that we need on that, and it's something that the coalition parties are working on. You were alluding to the fact that this is one of the reasons that the national security strategy is, uh, you know, publication has been slowed down, has been delayed because the idea of a National Security Council, which many of us, including myself, think would help streamlining decision-making in Berlin, raises questions over um, whether it empowers the foreign ministry or the chancellery. It will probably empower the chancellery. I think that that would make sense. Um, but that is, of course, something that's difficult to decide while one party has the foreign ministry and the other party has the chancellery, right? There are, foreign, there are politics involved here with uh, the Greens reluctant to give up power when they have the foreign ministry. Um, yeah, I think I'll end here. We could get into the, the personality politics, but I don't really think that uh, we need to because I think the sort of main uh, strands that are making German foreign policy decision-making difficult right now is the institutional side and then the coalition politics. Wolfgang, anything you wanna to add to that? Well, I certainly totally agree with what Sophia has said. Uh, maybe just one footnote uh, to that. Um, the what I what I meant when I uh, spoke uh, a little earlier of uh, what might be seen later on as a missed opportunity uh, is, of course, a very simple question. Uh, uh, the, my team, the in, in the Munich Security Conference put out a report six years ago in 2017, where we, where we pointed out that our great partner, the United States, um, entertains six, uh, if I remember correctly, six large weapon systems, you know, speaking of ships and aircraft and tanks, etc. Et uh, in contrast, the member states of the European Union um, uh, uh, continue to have the to enjoy the luxury of uh, developing, supporting, maintaining, etc., uh, producing spare parts for 36 such uh, large weapon systems. We have competing fighter aircraft within the European Union, uh, all sorts of uh, different systems. Uh, our helicopters are produced by one company, but each country has its own special helicopter which cannot be flown by the pilots of the neighboring country because of the special electronics, et cetera. This is, as from my point of view, absolutely ridiculous. And what it means 
quite frankly, and I've had this discussion with, you know, with experienced people like David Petraeus or Ben Hodges, uh, senior military uh, friends from the U.S., we spend our European defense euro in an almost, let me be blunt, in an almost irresponsible manner. If we if we admit that this is the single most challenging moment in recent European security history, we should, of course, do what the Americans do. We should produce maybe six large weapon systems, and we should get our act together and agree that, yes, there is a German-French uh, aircraft project that should be supported by all, all of us. There may be a different kind of uh, frigate and ship and tank, etc. Et uh, in other words, consolidation of uh, development and production in the European defense effort would inevitably mean that our defense effort would be better financed. Um, our 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 defense euro uh, would be more effectively spent uh, if we had fewer systems to uh, take care of. We could train our soldiers, our pilots on the same systems, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In other words, this is a huge, almost historic undertaking, and. And, and my my criticism, just to conclude this point, is that when I talk to German senior defense uh, decision makers, generals in our Ministry of Defense, they say, yeah, 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 of course, uh, very good idea. But right now, of course, we don't have time for that. The 100 billion, which Olaf Scholz announced uh, last February 27th, um, we don't have time to think about how much of that 100 billion should be spent in a kind of a European mission in order to 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 drive forward the idea of European consolidation in the arms production, etc. We don't have time for this kind of thing. We are now, um, you know, building up uh, defenses, and we don't have time for these uh, more philosophical questions. I think that's totally wrong. I think we're missing an opportunity, and that would be one of the points of criticism that I would have going forward. I think we need to return, the German government needs to return uh, with France and others to uh, seriously consider that this is the one and only chance we'll have probably in our lifetime to. Uh, to get our act together in a more more meaningful way, in order not to not to build an, a European NATO, as Sophia said, I totally agree with her. But in order to to make sure that we'll be over time a more respectable partner for the United States, that even people like Donald Trump would look at at as an asset and not as a liability. We have a question about broader dynamics in Europe. So one notion that's been hotly contested during this conflict is whether the center of gravity in Europe is shifting from Paris and Berlin, shifting west to east, to Warsaw, to the Baltic nations. I'd love to hear you know, your reflections. Do you think that that's the case? Um, is this, you know, should we be sounding the death knell for the Franco-German engine in the EU? How are you thinking about this balance of power within Europe itself right now in this moment? 
That's a great that that's a great question. If if, I, if I'm allowed to start answering this, um, well, of course, when I was an active participant during the time when I was um, a senior official in the German Foreign Ministry, the Franco-German agreement on almost any issue was the basis for any uh, step forward by the European Union. But that was a European Union that had maybe 12 or 18 members. The European Union now, of course, has expanded seriously. In other words, what I think is the case today is that the Franco-German agreement remains indispensable, but it it in its in and of itself is not is is no longer good enough um, in order to forge a larger consensus within the European Union. And yes, uh, I'm sure that it's true that because of the addition of so many new members, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, of course the center of gravity moves a little bit from maybe Western Europe more towards the center and, and maybe to countries, including uh, countries like Poland, et cetera. That's, um, that's a natural, almost inevitable, and a good development, I would, I would argue. Um, in other words, we continue to need Franco-German agreement, but we desperately need to have a decision-making core or a um, uh, you know, initiatives making core that includes more than just Germany and France that should include Poland. The problem is that with Poland at the moment, we have all sorts of difficulties between Brussels and, and Poland because of the um, uh, because of the rule of law issues and 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 other uh, and and other difficulties that have little to do with foreign policy but have a lot to do with domestic Polish issues, etc. So let's hope that over time, um, a configuration will emerge that would allow a core group, an informal core group in Europe to evolve that would include, of course, France and Germany, that, but that would also include Poland, maybe in the future, countries like Romania, and, and on the other side, um, uh, uh, hopefully a stronger role of Italy, if Italy can, can have in the future, more stable governments uh, going forward, and 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 Spain. Uh, let me conclude by saying the one thing that I regret more than anything else is that in this predicament that we're that we've been thrown into by the aggression uh, by Russia, uh, the most unfortunate uh, uh, thing that happened to us is the departure by the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom was surely the one of the very few pillars of European, of smart European foreign policy, security policy, and certainly defense policy. And the fact that the, that the UK has left the EU has left a deep, deep hole that we find very difficult to fill. Sophia, you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, maybe, because I, I think it's an interesting question, this question of the, whether the center of gravity is shifting. And I certainly agree with uh, Wolfgang Ischinger on the moral imperative of forging broader European leadership alliances. Uh, I'm not so sure if materially we're there. Um, I do think that um, the Central East and Eastern European uh, member states have certainly exerted 
uh, moral leadership, rhetorical leadership, and um, agenda-setting power when it comes to the issue of the war in Ukraine. I'm not sure that it goes much beyond that. And I think that in terms of EU power structures and EU decision-making structures, just the demographic and political power that Paris and Berlin still exert in Brussels remains the same. Um, so I think that also almost remains independent on how the Franco-German motor is working. And I understand that that's frustrating for the rest of Europe, but um, right now, if Paris and Berlin don't agree, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> and I think that remains true. Um, and I also think one reason for why that might remain true in the future is that the Central and Eastern European bloc, even though we often talk about it as a bloc, isn't actually a coherent alliance. Um, there are different interests there too. Um, and I think when it comes to the war, we could probably count the Nordics into that alliance, but not when it comes to many other issues. In fact, there are divergences between the Nordic countries as well. There's the rule of law issue that continues to undermine Poland's standing in Brussels. So I think it remains true that we need to invest in the Franco-German uh, motor and in Franco-German understanding with the understanding that both capitals need to also reach out to um, other European countries to strengthen their the legitimacy of their decision making, which, by the way, I think we are seeing. I think that Paris continues reaching out bilaterally um, to the south and also to the east. Um, the UK is doing the same thing. I do hope that the UK, France and Germany can um, in the medium term come together again as the E3 and, and um, show some leadership there. And I think that um, for Scholz and for Berlin, the challenge is to regain the trust of Central and Eastern European countries. And I don't, I'm not thinking just of Poland, that's a difficult bilateral relationship, but also the bilateral, uh, also the Baltic states and also the Nordic states. Um, there are certainly questions still um, over, uh, over how reliable Germany is as a partner which I don't think are grounded in the decisions that Germany made over the last year, but the decisions that it has made the years before then on energy policy, on defense policy. And we still have a, while, a way to go to, to regain that, that trust and that credibility, I think. Yeah, really important points. Okay, we're almost at time, so maybe we can do one very quick final question. And I'm really interested to hear both of your takes or your assessments on the prospects of uh, the staying power of the West and maybe specifically the staying power of Germany uh, in terms of its support for Ukraine. So I think now we would probably all agree that we're looking at a protracted war, a long war. Um, and we have heard over and over that Putin believes that time is on his side, that he can wait the West out um, and that eventually our publics will grow tired of providing such extensive uh, and costly aid to Ukraine. But but I wonder what you think about um, I guess that, that that's it the staying power in of of the German public and Germany's leadership in particular. Wolfgang, maybe we can start with you. Okay, I know we we need to be we need to try to be brief uh, on on this. Um, actually, at the moment, from my vantage point, things look not so bad. Uh, there is no major force in the German Bundestag, for example, which opposes the continued financial, economic, political, and military support for Ukraine. That's good. Uh, actually, when I look at my friends, uh, what's, gonna, what's going on in Washington, uh, I note that there are 
significant, still minority, but significant forces that raise questions about the wisdom of, of this uh, wide-ranging uh, support. We don't have that in Germany as, uh, uh, as, of, uh, as of today. How will this evolve going forward? I think that's the core of your question. Um, I think that it will be very, it would be very helpful to maintain a solid, uh, you know, majority support throughout the German political uh, classes. If we had in the in the field of foreign policy uh, on the Ukraine issue. Um, the kind of Rammstein arrangement that our defense people have. Now, they discuss, you know, which kinds of Gepard or Mager or Leopard tanks should be delivered by whom and in what uh, kind of uh, time, time frame. That's good. And these, this is a very large group. As I, uh, I think I remember the last time they met in Rammstein, there were practically 50 countries or so. What I think would be helpful not only to maintain German support for the continued uh, uh, engagement in and, and on behalf of Ukraine, uh, but also in order to keep together the West on, on Ukraine, would be a kind of smaller political, you know, foreign ministers kind of uh, contact group on Ukraine. What exactly should be our um, a desired outcome. Are we in favor of military reoccupation of Crimea? Yes or no? Uh, are we in favor of a kind of Henry Kissinger approach? Uh, let's uh, at least try to help Ukraine uh, regain the territory that was lost since February the 24th of last year. Is that the kind of the minimum required uh, um, uh, military success? Uh, or what exactly? Are we supporting and and going beyond that? What kind of negotiating framework, if and when uh, the Russians might uh, uh, might be open to serious negotiation? What kind of negotiating framework are we talking about? Are we hoping for some Chinese um, um, a peace proposal, or are we going to come up with one? Um, is there? I, I keep reading that uh, Bill Burns. I don't know. To, I have not had a chance to talk to him about this or to his uh, uh, to his staff, um, but I keep reading that uh, he uh, raised the question of some kind of land for peace um, arrangement, which I think makes eminent sense. That's going to be at the end of the day probably one of the questions that will need to be discussed. Uh, and I don't think it's helpful for us in trying to maintain unity in a purpose in Germany and beyond if we don't start to have a, a confidential um, a group that discusses these questions between the U U.S. and her European allies. Um, uh, the, the, the as, a, as a former practicing diplomat, I know what the real problem is. If I were an American decision maker at this moment, I would scratch my head and I would ask myself, okay, we're going to create a contact group. Um, if you want a meaningful contact group, you can't have more than maybe five, six, seven, or eight people in this. But if we create a contact group with six, five or six or eight people, we will have 
like 25 countries that are totally, what's the word, pissed off, I mean, angry, angry at us for not being included in this. So this is a hugely difficult assignment for anyone who wants to forge such a such a coalition, such a mechanism, but I think it needs to happen sooner or later and it would help keep us uh, in line together, the Germans, uh, but also many other uh, others of, among our partners. Yeah, Thanks. important point. Yeah, a political equivalent of the of the uh, Romstein mm -hmm. format. Sophia, yeah. what are you? Mo I mean, it's a same question, but just to add, you know, what are what are the what are the biggest risks that you see to the staying power of the West? What are you most worried about? What are the big barriers, the roadblocks? What are you watching? Okay, uh, yeah, good question. So I think what I. Another way to frame that would be to ask what are the how do we measure solidarity, right? How do we measure measure the staying power of the West? Um, one is, I think, the continued commitment to sanctions, which I'm currently not worried about. The continued commitment to arms deliveries, which I'm also currently not worried about. Um, the continued uh, cohesion of the transatlantic alliance is a bit more difficult to measure. Um, I, to me, the big risk factor here is um, probably the next U.S. election, <laughs> if, we, if we're being honest, because the transatlantic alliance currently is so um, much dominated by the U.S. leadership. There are also other countries uh, like Turkey or Poland that are undermining transatlantic cohesion right now. But to me, the U.S. election is the one that I watch the most. Um, and then maybe just to end on this, Wolfgang made excellent points on the the war uh, and concrete commitment of the West to the war. I think when we think one step ahead, what I would wish for is that we th start thinking a bit more long term in terms of Western support to Ukraine and other frontline states that will have to continue even if and when the war ends, right? And that means continued um, investment in our, and I'm sorry to keep banging on about this, but in our defense industrial production capacity, in our armed forces, uh, and in the integration of uh, European frontline states into our political alliances. And that to me is the next hurdle and the, the next bar that the Western Alliance will have to take. No, oh, it's such an important point. I think that's the thing I worry about the most is the state of the defense industrial base, our ability to sustain the weapons that Ukraine needs to fulfill our own stocks. Um, so I think that is definitely going to, we're going to put that on a list of the next topic for the for our podcast, because we definitely need to dig into that and, and whether or not the defense industries are springing into action or not. Um, and if not, why not? And, and how do we, how do we um, create the conditions to be able to sustain this because it's also an important signal to Putin, right? I mean, I guess if you're looking at this from his perspective and he believes that he can outlast us, he needs like these very credible commitments and not us just sending things from existing stocks, right? Things off the shelf. That's, you know, it, it's it's obviously important, but he needs to see credibly that we intend to stay in this for the long haul as well. And I think that's the only real way that we can shape his calculus. But um, we've gone very, very long, but we've also raised a number of issues for us to delve into on future episodes. So thank you so much um, to both of you for joining us, and hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again at some point. But thank you, Wolfgang. Thank you, Sophia. Thank you. That was great. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was great. Thank you all. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.